You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigger with a library card. <laughs> This is the most dangerous thing in America podcast. Happy Chinese New Year, Year of the Bull. I wish you health and prosperity, whatever that means for you. And this week we are talking about We Real Cool by Bell Hooks, which is a book about black masculinity. The title of the book is derived by a poem by Gwendolyn Brooks, which I'm not going to read, but you can Google it and find it on the Poetry Foundation. It is... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten lines, very short poem, maybe about 40 words, uh, and, it, and it's a classic poem. So that's where the title of the book comes from. Um, so what we're going to do now is kind of give a brief summary of the book, then I'm going to give some general impressions, and then going to talk about a few specific points that I thought were interesting. So for a summary, we're going to just read a passage from the preface which bell hooks gives and I, I think it really sums up everything the book's about quite nicely seen as animals brutes natural born rapists and murderers black men have had no real dramatic say when it comes to the way they are represented they have made few interventions on the stereotype as a consequence they are victimized by stereotypes that were first articulated in the 19th century but hold sway over the minds and imaginations of citizens of this nation in the present day. Black males who refuse categorization are rare, for the price of visibility in the contemporary world of white supremacy is that black male identity be defined in relation to the stereotype, whether by embodying it or seeking to be other than it. At the center of the way black male selfhood is constructed in white, sup white supremacist capitalist patriarchy is the image of the brute, untamed, uncivilized, unthinking, and unfilling. Okay, and that's really what this book is about. It's about the idea that black males have been subjugated, stereotyped, and victimized, and we, I'm a black male, we have helped perpetuate that stereotype. Uh, as Bell Hook says, we have done few things to, uh, we have made few interventions on that stereotype. So um, I'm going to hop right into my first general impression and say that this was a hard book to read as a black male. You feel like you're being attacked, um, and you feel like you're being empathized with. So that, that part's nice. Uh, some of the critiques that Bell Hooks offers are obviously their critiques of society and the, again, I'm going to be using this phrase a lot, white supremacist, white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. Some of the critiques are lodged against that power structure, but some of them are lodged against black males. Um, and some of them are fair, and some of them feel unfair, um, but maybe they are fair. And so as a black male, it's a difficult read, but it's a good read. And I think at the end of it, you come away asking yourself, at least if you're open to it, are you a radical black male, to use her term? And I believe Bell Hooks's definition of a radical black male would be a black male who does not embrace white supremacist, white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. Um, which may seem like an obvious thing that well, I'm a black male, of course I don't embrace white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. But there's a lot of self-hate and there's a lot of blind devotion to that power structure that I am perhaps guilty of and 
and maybe you too if you're a black male. And maybe you too if you're not a black male. But this book is about black males. Alright, so that's my first general impression. My second general impression is that the style of the book is uh, very much cultural criticism. Feels like something from France, something maybe Foucault would write. Uh, feels like Bell Hooks is looking at trends and then extrapolating on them and theorizing about them and citing a lot of books and things that she's read. Studies, not so much. Not a lot of data in this book. Not saying that you necessarily needed data, but it is not a book that is data heavy whatsoever. So what you're reading is somebody who's culled together a ton of sources and has made some points. And you might agree with them and you might disagree with them. And maybe you could use data to disprove some of them. I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit later at the end. Um, but by and large, these points feel like they're well made. They feel like they're based off of um, lived experience, but that it's, a, it's not a lived experience that's uncommon. All right, and my final general impression of the book is that Bell Hooks is of my father's generation. So she's talking about her father in the book because obviously that's the first black male she came into contact with. And when she's doing that, it's natural for me to read the book and think about, uh, think about my own father. But it's really not the same thing because obviously her father is my grandfather's generation. So I had to make the adjustment there. That was the first thing. And the second thing, and this comes out much later in the book, is that she's of my father's generation, which means when she talks about hip-hop, her her uh, relationship to hip-hop is nothing like my relationship to hip-hop. And in fact, I was a 19-year-old when this book came out in 2004, so I'm very much the young black male that she was addressing at the time. So uh, those are things to keep in mind. Let's get specific. So, I'm going to talk about a few chapters here and a few points in each chapter. So, chapter one is about black men on the plantation, so obviously during slavery times, and how they learned, let's try it again, white capitalist, no, white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. They learned this when they were brought to America, and they learned how to participate in it, and they were inundated with it, and before they were brought to America, that wasn't necessarily the case. Um, there's a decent amount of this in the book and there's not a ton of data or evidence for it. It may or may not be true. I think ultimately it's unimportant if it is true. It, it doesn't really matter if black males used to behave differently. All that really matters is that black males are behaving a certain way now and they need to change it. Um, so that would be my first observation from chapter one. My second observation is is in relation to this quote from the from the uh, from that chapter again it must be emphasized that the black men who are most worried about castration and emasculation are those who have completely absorbed white supremacist patriarchal definitions of masculinity first of all no no uh, pushback whatsoever here i believe it's true i believe there's definitely a piece of black men who want to prove that they are man enough and I'm going to throw back to uh, Ozzie Davis, the great actor, who said that Malcolm was the man who gave black men their masculinity back. My question is, would it even have been possible for black men who were on the plantation, who had been subjugated, who had had their masculinity and their human, uh, humanity stripped from them, to go from that place to 
becoming a radical black male who didn't believe in the patriarchy, basically? Would it, would it have been possible to have everything stripped from you and say, okay, I'm not power hungry now. Even though I was destitute before and I've seen the power structure and the power structure when you're on top looks nice. Is it possible for me to ignore that and build something better? Um, the answer obviously is that they didn't do it, but just would it have been possible? It doesn't make it right, but I don't even know if it was possible. At any rate, Bell Hooks's point for that first chapter and several chapters after that kind of deal with the same thing is well taken. Um, it's time to unlearn those things that we learned uh, coming out of slavery, coming out of the Jim Crow South, coming out of America's apartheid system. We can't just go and repeat the same mistakes that were made by the people who were in the pre-existing power structure and who are still in power today. We can't just repeat those mistakes. So it's a good point, but I just thought those were a couple of interesting ideas around it. On to chapter 5, which was my favorite chapter. I thought the most interesting chapter, and a chapter which has a lot of stuff that's well-known. I think a lot of people are familiar with it, but I still just thought it was very well done. And so this, uh, this chapter is all about uh, black males and sex and our relationship to sex, and it really deals a lot with the idea of the, well, kind of. It kind of deals a lot with the idea of the, the myth of um, the black man as the ultimate lover. But what I thought was even more interesting was the idea that it deals with the black male who uses sex as a way to get back at white males. And the, uh, the source that Bell Hooks cites for this is Eldridge Cleaver's uh, book, Soul on Ice, which was a memoir. Eldridge Cleaver, if you don't know, was a Black Panther and part of the Black Power movement. And in this book, he talks about how, first of all, he practiced rape on black women. And then um, he says, quote, while I was defiling his women, his meaning white women, white people's, white men's women, while I was defiling his women, I felt I was getting revenge. This was a fascinating concept to me when I read Eldridge Cleaver's book, because I, I have that book on my shelf, read it a couple years ago. And while I was reading it, I was thinking, my goodness, this was, this guy was held up by the the established left at the time, the left media, and they, they were for this. This is crazy that he got away writing this stuff. And so I thought it was interesting that Bell Hooks connected the dots between uh, black males going overboard with their masculinity because it had been stripped away from them, then using that masculinity and using the stereotype of them as a... As a <laughs> using the stereotype of us... Do I have to say us or them here? It's very odd. Let's let's go with us. Using the stereotype of us as um, the ultimate lover and then weaponizing that in order to get revenge on white people. It's something that I think is in the ether if you connected the dots between the myth of black male sexual prowess and like internet culture and cucking. If you connected those, those two things, it's a pretty uh, clear line between those two things. But Bell Hooks was writing this in 2004. It wasn't unknown then. It, it had existed up to that time before that, but it's still interesting. Um, and she goes on to quote uh, another writer, another academic uh, from Howard University in this chapter and talks about how black males um, have gone and 
embodied all the stereotypes. The super athlete, the irresistible entertainer, a fashionable counterculture activist, a sexual outlaw, a gangster, a cool pose rapper, a homeboy. We've taken on these roles that have been defined for us or that we've defined or that we've helped define in conjunction with white people. And we're all just wearing these masks in this society. And uh, all, a lot of them involve the black male body specifically. So then that also brings in another connection of not just the sex aspect and the weaponized sex aspect, but also just the male body in general. The sexuality of the African-American male body without it being, um, without it like actively participating in sex. The body is still sexualized. It's still fetishized. All very interesting stuff. And Bell Hooks does a really good job of going through all of the different myths and um, the ways that they're destructive to the community. And I thought the ultimate takeaway from this was that black males have to seek to not prove their masculinity by having as much sex as possible. No, really, Bell Hooks says in the book, all males have to do this, right? Males are taught from an early age that the most important thing in the world is just go out and have as much sex as you can, and that'll prove that you're a man. And all men need to get away from this. But since this book is about black males, specifically, black males need to get away with uh, get away from this. And doing that would make uh, would make you a radical black male. Because that is the part that has been learned uh, in our white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchal society. So I thought that was the most interesting part of the whole book. If, if the book was just chapter five and it was expanded to be a hundred page book, it could have been. Um, definitely the most interesting part of the book for me. Okay, uh, a minor note from chapter seven, which I thought was interesting and I'm just going to mention here quickly was that black folks have been so concerned with charting the impact of racism in their lives that they have failed to examine all of the other painful formative traumas that may have little or nothing to do with racism. That was a direct quote. This is a very, uh, again, kind of like the last chapter, a very uh, ubiquitous idea now. I think everybody knows about intersectionality. But in 2004, we didn't know about that. And it was true that some black people would be so concerned with racism that we wouldn't be addressing the personal issues in our lives that may be leading to body image issues or anger or depression or any of these things. And also, you know, getting help from these things, especially at that time, was very stigmatized. But um, in the last couple of years, we've seen a really good push towards acceptance of these different types of problems that people are struggling with. And so you don't have to feel like you know, you have to go at it alone just because you're a black male and you'll be laughed at by your peers. So yeah, I, I just thought that was an interesting little tidbit and something that is very ubiquitous now that was not 17 years ago. Chapter 10, the chapter that I liked the least, and that's because it is about hip hop. So uh, I'm going to run through this quote very quickly. This is about the blues. Were masses of young blacks listening to the blues, they would make the connection between, on the one hand, a serious politics of cool that is about recognizing the meaning of spiritual quests in a secular life where self-actualization requires an understanding, and, on the other, appreciation of the need to nurture the inner life of the spirit as a survival strategy. Uh, that is, if you are listening to the blues, versus if you're listening to hip-hop. Now, here's the hip-hop quote. Hip-hop culture has created some fun subcultural playgrounds, some decent sounds and great grooves, 
decent sound. But it has yet to keep it real, quote-unquote keep it real, by interfacing with the world beyond the subculture and mainstream commodification of blackness in a way that deadens to truly offer black males, young and old, blueprints for liberation, healing, a return to soul, and wholeness. Okay, first of all, this is a tremendous amount of uh, weight to put on two music genres. That's number one. For the blues... I think the blues could be that for a person if it was their ethos. Like, and the person that she's quoting here and talking about in chapter 10 a bunch is B.B. King, a man who lived the blues for like six decades. But that's not everybody's experience who listened to the blues, I don't think. For the hip-hop aspect of this, chapter 10 spends a lot of time talking about how hip-hop is bad and how it perpetuates White supremacist, white supremacist capitalist patriarchal culture. I'm only going to offer two critiques to this, and I'm going to be done. The first critique is, one, hip-hop was not created by the mass media. It was a roots movement, and like all roots movements, like punk or reggae or any other thing that is created in our capitalist culture, it will be commodified by people. So... Yes, hip-hop has been co-opted. Blues were also co-opted. So it's nothing special about hip-hop other than it was a complete roots movement when it started in the Bronx in the 70s in New York. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, uh, hip-hop does not kill people. Guns kill people. And this is the part I want to get to with statistics. If you go look at any crime statistics uh, from, uh, what is it, the Pew Research Center or anywhere else, any anything with reliable crime statistics, you will see that the peak crime rate in America was reached during the 70s and early 90s. If you were committing crime in the 70s, you are not listening to hip-hop, most likely. Tukey Williams, who founded the Crips, when I was reading his book last year, which is called Blue Redemption and Black Anger, Black Anger and Blue Redemption, something like that, um... He was listening to funk music, and I remember remarking to my friend, you know, it's interesting to think about Tukey Williams going out and gangbang and listening to funk, you know, listening to Frankie Beverly and Mays, um, because you would have thought, I mean, you just naturally think gangsters, crips, they're listening to, you know, Snoop or something, right? But if you were committing crimes through the 70s and like even most of the 80s, probably not listening to hip hop because it hadn't exploded yet, right? So what came first, the chicken or the egg? Were people committing crimes or were they listening to hip-hop? They were committing crimes. And why were these people committing crimes? Was it because some infectious music got into their stereo and told them to go out and commit crimes? No. They were committing crimes because of economic blight. They were committing crimes because the jobs in the inner cities of, let's say, for instance, Detroit, Chicago, Baltimore, to name a few black cities, the industrial jobs left, and when those industrial jobs left, angry young men had nothing to do, and so they committed crimes. This is not some new pattern. We see it happen all over America, all over the world. When economic opportunities are taken out of an area, the people grow restless. Some of them grow angry, and some of them are willing to do anything to make a few dollars. Hip-hop reflected this, and it offered some people solace, a respite, a way to escape their dreary existence. Now, I have rhapsodized hip-hop enough. Of course, hip-hop has tons of problems. It has homophobia. It has uh, misogyny. 
and those are negatives. And certainly, mainstream hip-hop has perpetuated, I wouldn't say white supremacist, but maybe through self-hating, white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchal culture. That has happened. However, hip-hop raised me. It it raised many black males who are in my generation, the hip-hop generation, that is, people for whom popular music was always hip-hop. As soon as I could listen to popular music, it was hip-hop. I've always listened to hip-hop. And having raised us, it's raised a bunch of black males who commit less crimes than the generations previous to us. So I'm not saying it's perfect, but the data doesn't bear out that hip-hop is what's torn apart the black community. And this is something that you'll hear from people like John McWhorter. Uh, You'll hear it from people within hip-hop too, who are trying to reform hip-hop, like Lupe Fiasco. Now, I'm not saying that they're all wrong. Of course, hip-hop needs to work. And Lupe's approach is a lot different than John McWhorter's approach. Um, All I'm saying is that for Bell Hooks, hip-hop means pretty much one thing. And hip-hop is way more diverse than that. And as an example, there is a mixtape out there called We Real Cool, named after Bell Hooks' book, which was in turn named after a poem. So there's a lot of hip-hop out there. And this critique felt a bit unfair to me. That being said, I've already pointed out that hip-hop has some work to do. And certainly, I have some work to do choosing which hip-hop I listen to. I mainly try to listen to thoughtful hip-hop. But of course, at times, I just want to put something on that's maybe innocuous. And perhaps I could do better. So, no, no critique is completely unfair. That's going to do it for We Real Cool with Bell Hooks. It was an interesting read. It was a difficult read, a challenging read. So next week, going to try to do something that's no less uh, well-written, but maybe a little bit less challenging in terms of um, thinking about myself so much <laughs> and my relationship to black masculinity. That was a lot of a lot of uh, inner work, a lot of self-reflection. Um, so next week, we are going to read Nikki Dolson's Love and Other Criminal Behavior. It is a crime fiction uh, short story collection, and it came out in June of 2020. So I'll be reading that and talking about that. And yeah, in the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, stay black, and keep reading. <laughs>